0: It's a great honor to be joined today by Dr. Li Xing Sun. He is a distinguished research professor of biology at Central Washington University and author of The Fairness Instinct, as well as most recently, The Liars of Nature and the Nature of Liars. Li Xing, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Adam, for your invitation. It's a great opportunity to have uh, have some time to to talk about uh, my book.
0: Thank you for joining us and for writing this excellent and fascinating book. You you are talking about lying and deception, which I think typically we think of these very human things, right? But you you give a bunch of excellent examples, even on the cover of the book here. This is an insect that's like masquerading as a leaf, right? So this is a natural form of deception.
1: That's, yeah, exactly. That's the um, uh, from Brazil. Uh, it's the leaf mimicking kitty yeah
0: <laughs> and yeah. even the little
1: broken piece is a whale mimic
0: <laughs> exactly yeah so th- so this is an excellent example of deception and e- you don't really require any real intelligence for deception i guess even even little insects are doing it and you introduce in the book two laws of lying and deception and you you make a useful distinction between those two types can we can we talk about what that distinction is
1: yeah, it's, it's 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 tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah, when people talk about uh deception, lying, cheating, uh people often use them interchangeably, but actually they are different. Um, lying refers to uh the the communicating false information during communication. If I tell you something false, I'm lying. I'm lying. I said, well, um, when he asked, well, how are you? I said. No, I'm terrible. I'm, actually, I'm very, <laughs> very well today. I feel happy, but I just don't tell you. i mean I'm lying. But mm-hmm. deception is different. Deception is that uh, um, another uh, individual does not matter. The same species or different species. They use the weakness of your cognitive system, and and then fool you. So it's not, not communication. But that's uh, what that's but what it,
0: this guy is doing.
1: Exactly. That's that's mimic is a very typical deception. It's not lying. Mm-hmm. So it's basically to fool a predator's uh, vision, so that uh, to escape to escape from uh, from being uh, eaten. So that's deception. So, so lying sometimes and deception, it's, it's escaping. It's, uh, sometimes uh, it's like, uh, yeah, two different biological processes, or psychological processes, if you like.
0: And then if we want to keep branching this decision tree, um, within deception, There's the sort of deception that's like, I'm harmless or I'm not what you actually want to eat. like, I'm just a leaf. And then there's the other types with the poisonous frogs or even the non-poisonous frogs that evolve these bright colors that generally signal poison. And they're just deceiving you into thinking that they put all their evolutionary points into that perk, so to speak.
1: Absolutely. We called it a Millerian mimicry. Millerian mimicry means... Uh, these poisonous the species tend to converge together, so they they send out the warning signal. You eat me, you die. So that is the kind of signal. Uh, some other potentially, especially for example, like birds <laughs> would get the message. Huh.
0: And I, I guess there's this sort of equilibrium that has to happen because you would think it's costly for, let's say, a poisonous animal to evolve or produce the poison, right? So to the extent that it can get away with it, it's going to be incentivized to only have the color but not the actual poison. But then if too many species start doing that, then the color is meaningless, right? So there's a stable percent of the population that can get away with deceiving, and beyond that, it starts to fail?
1: Absolutely. Um, this, This is sometimes called the, 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 the Patesian mimicry and named after the, uh, the British naturalist, Henry Bates. Batizian mm-hmm. uh, mimicry means an uh, edible uh, species mimic something really menacing, toxic, but in fact, it is not. Well, sometimes mm-hmm. they mimic the objects such as leaves, uh, leaves or uh, 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 kind of plant sticks, for example, stick insects. And these are called batizian uh, mimicry.
0: And these doesn't have to be con- uh, con- conscious, right? Like you can be engaging in this sort of deception without really having even any concept of deception as all, at all as the humans speak of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Most of it actually is unconscious, definitely. Uh, it's an adaptation.
0: Then would you say that lying as opposed to deception, where deception is exploiting these sensory biases or weaknesses on the part of other animals and lying is actively creating falsehood is that something that you need to have where does that where does that emerge on the evolutionary ladder how complex do you have to be to engage in lying
1: oh well, lying uh, i i believe uh should be uh should evolved from uh, should have evolved from communication people tell lies for example and animals do the same thing uh, uh during the communication so that's lying uh, and deception is 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 more uh, is more is broader. Uh, it does not matter within the same species or within different species. Uh, the the one I just showed you the <laughs> the sensitive plant actually is a deception. They pretend to be dead so that uh, the uh, um, the um, potential uh, herbivores, especially the grasshoppers, will not like to eat them. Grasshoppers mm-hmm. like fresh food. But when they see the a dying plant, they will not eat it. So that mm-hmm. is a deception.
0: You had another great example from a personal story in your book about duck hunting. Oh,
1: that that was a real cool one. Yeah, um, that was my first encounter with a, a duck that pretend to uh, to have a broken, uh, pretend to have a a broken wing. And um, local people were pretty poor uh, in the area I was working for my masters. So that day uh, the guy uh, by the name of Lao I talked about him uh, by the name of Lao he was only 18 years old but he was my occasional field assistant but he's the other day it was quite late uh, around five six o'clock in the summer and then he saw a uh, mallet trailed by six ducklings. He said, listen, come here, come here, <laughs> come here. <laughs> we found, we found a, a small ducks, they call small ducks, so ducklings. So um, he took me uh, with a small a small boat and was, we quickly caught them up. And then on the shore, the mallard or the, the mama mallard, the female mallard uh, uh, quickly hit everybody and, and um, the small ducklings were also hiding. And then when we were searching for them, and then he found, wow, Lishi, take a look, take a look here, here. I see that that duck is has a broken wing, and he she cannot fly. So she began, uh, he began to chase that one, and uh, instantly
0: losing all interest in yeah, the ducklings, they, going they after the big meat. I lost means.
1: the focus. I actually I kicked the, the the grass around. I found a small duckling, but I did not tell him. So he began to be uh, uh, distracted to by the uh, by by the female uh, mala, and then uh, female mala just was just about two yards away from him, and then suddenly took off. Suddenly took off, <laughs> and then he came back uh, empty-handed, and he was kicking around here and there, and did not did not find anything. this hints at extreme
0: intelligence in the mother duck because she's assuming that if she pretends to be injured you're going to go after her and not the ducklings and yeah now again to get to the question of consciousness in lying do you think that she actually knows enough like it's intelligent enough to think that or is this something that can happen instinctually unconsciously
1: that's a great question. I think I would leave it to you, psychologists, to work on that. <laughs> but yeah. um, ass- we we would like to assume that that kind of behavior uh potentially is built in, partially built in, and partially adjusted uh during the development. I mean, so many duck, uh not only ducks but uh, kill deer. uh these are the shorebirds. And I also found um, uh, some species of quails also do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I when you see a behavior that is widely uh, uh, spread uh, just uh, in many different species, uh, and, and really uh, they are distantly related. And these behaviors typically share a common ancestor long time ago. So I do believe mm-hmm. uh, there got to be genetic basis, but I will not say <laughs> the nature or nurture. But it got to uh-huh. be some kind of adaptation. It's both. It's a nature and a nurture. I
0: think that's, that some, that's usually some where of that I'm better,
1: yeah, better at that.
0: <laughs> it's really amazing in either direction, whichever one it is, because either uh, birds are much smarter than we realize, or the things that can happen unconsciously and genetically programmed instinctual behavior are much more complex than we realize.
1: Oh, Absolutely episode, I talked about in there, I talked about uh, that the great cuckoo, uh, if you remember the great cuckoo, when they uh, uh, try to parasitize on the magpies' nest, so the megapies uh, are quite big bird and they would fight against them. So the, the great cuckoos would do is sending the male to distract them. <laughs> The male and female uh, magpies out of their nest, and the female uh, female cuckoo would sneak into their nest uh, nest and lay an egg. So this There's, sort of a play, Barney and Clyde.
0: Uh huh. There's an incredible diversity of species that you talk about in your book, and and you eventually build up to humans and talking about the unique forms deception takes in humans. Um, but first, I want to ask you about your own biological research background because because normally people become experts on a single species right but you have so much diversity here
1: yeah that's that's uh, my evolution of my research i mean being in a small school uh we are uh, uh, we are always underfunded although we have many ideas it's just underfunding uh that the uh, limit uh uh lim- limits are um uh our capacity to pursue some bigger questions. So I sort of skipping around, sometimes working with other people. Uh sometimes you know I actually got quite a bit from a Chinese government uh, to do uh um, basic research. So I, I worked with um a lot of species uh from tree frogs, which is local, uh fairly easy uh, <laughs> during, for example, a a a break and then we can just like, go out and do some study. And that is about tree frog camouflage. Um, and we have, I showed you the picture. So we have two, uh, one species of tree, uh, the Pacific uh, tree frog that shows two morphs, one gray morph, the other green morph. So we try to uh, understand how they evolve and how they adapt to different environments. And then uh, later on, I worked on, well, my, my PhD was about uh, uh, the beaver on uh, chemical communication. Uh, which also I mentioned in the book about uh, a king recognition uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, prevention of these uh, extra pair copulation. Uh, The the, the way they can actually tell uh, uh, from each other that prevents, uh, especially uh, uh, females from engaging in extra pair copulation because the males could sniff out. Uh, What
0: is it like switching research from frogs to beavers? How much is the same and what did you have to learn or relearn
1: it's totally, uh, have to relearn whenever I start uh, start start a new project, I uh, have to learn everything about it. So I spent about nearly 20 years on beaver and then uh, briefly on frog. Then I realized there was a paper published in Science in the 1970s claiming that there are two pairs of alleles on two loci to control the, uh, the tree frog's coloration, the color morphs. Turn out to be it is far more complex <laughs> I thought I, I got a perfect model to pursue uh, in my lifetime but uh, four or five years down the line we found the mechanism was far more uh, complex so we uh, we had to give it up but although we, we we published a few good papers as well but then I I worked com- I went back to working on chemical communication in rodents I talked a lot uh, in my book about rodents, and then on uh, um, pandas as well for the uh, chemical communication. And, and eventually, about 20 years ago, uh, I began to explore the possibility to, to study uh, the monkeys, the Tibetan macaque. Uh, so uh, so that has been my transition. <laughs> and are you still, <laughs> but, you still know, working? Monkey is my my, my my ultimate goal. I try to see, sort of like a seeing human basic insects. Uh, instinct and how they are related to a typical uh, monkey, for example. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. How much are you actually interacting with animals at this stage in your career?
1: Uh, a lot, still a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. As long as we, we have more ideas, many creative ideas, we just don't have enough students to work on them.
0: Uh, that's that's excellent, because I I know in some fields of academia, the model is something like the higher up you go, the less actual research you're doing. And it's more like the grad students who are actually doing the field work and then they just report up to you.
1: Yeah, that's a, like a big school, like a Harvard. <laughs> the, the the PIs are responsible for getting money and everything else is done by <laughs> graduate students, postdoc fellows and, <laughs> and visiting uh-huh. scholars. Now, not in our school, the small school, we, we occasionally have some um, master's graduate students. So so we have to pay uh, the our uh, our uh, uh, ambition <laughs> uh-huh. something more manageable uh more doable uh are uh, more focused and could be done within a short period of time so long term je- uh, projects are not that easy and remember that when we don't get a lot of outstanding students like you guys <laughs>
0: i'm sure i'm sure you still do uh now another sort of nature versus nurture debate but really a fake debate because of course we know it's both with nature and nurture in evolution, I imagine, is survival or reproduction. Now, obviously, it's both. But when, when an animal evolves some sort of deceptive appearance or behavior, there's the question of, is it doing this for survival reasons, like in the case of poison and not getting eaten or seen by predators? Or is it doing it for reproductive reason of like signaling fitness?
1: Oh, both. Yeah, huh. there are tricks for survival. There are tricks for reproduction. These are uh, sexual cheats, uh, for uh, all over, yeah, for uh, for reproduction. So I, I, these are the two themes, and uh, these are survival tricks versus the uh, the, mm. the reproductive tricks. But
0: sometimes they go in opposite directions. Like if it, the classic example with the peacock, it's evolving these big beautiful feathers to signal its fitness, but at the same time. It's handicapping itself. So the feathers Absolutely. cost yeah. a lot of energy. They make it more visible to predators, and so on. And it's saying, like, "Look at what a big handicap I have. My genes must be really excellent if I can still survive with all this baggage."
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's I was talking about. Uh, males and females during the courtship. The males choose, uh, uh, choo- uh, choose males choose females. Females choose males. But if, for example, it's uh, just to use a use stereotype. Um. um competing males versus choosing females. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's all the stereotype, but just for the simplicity of discussion. Um, If you have 10 males around, everybody's saying, I'm the guy, I'm I'm the guy, I'm the good one. And how can females tell them apart? They need a natural light detector, as I was saying <laughs> right, in my book. Mm-hmm. That is the, the honest signal, the handicap, communicates exactly that. If a male is weak, the male cannot afford. Uh, sort of like for example, peacock cannot afford a long tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that is exactly uh it's it's driven by female choice. Uh by female choice. Yeah, males have to show female they are fit, they are strong, which also means they have good genes.
0: So there's an optimistic and pessimistic story being told here because thus far we've been talking about evolutionary pressures in favor of deception, and you don't want to commit some naturalistic fallacy saying like, well, lying evolves in all sorts of species, therefore lying must be good. We also see evolutionary pressures for honesty. So that's the good news. The bad news is that often honesty has to come through these costly signals.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and this is something people often say, well, cheating is good, <laughs> lying is good, greed is good. <laughs> uh, Anything can be good uh, until it is countered by another one alternative. For example, honesty is good when in a situation there are where there are lots of cheaters, mm-hmm. and honesty is is not as good when everybody is honest because you create opportunity for cheaters to profit from it. Uh-huh. So that is a kind of evolutionary balance. So we will see that's that's the way diversity is created diversity is created. Um, and I talked about that, um, especially for these, um, these cheat, uh, uh, for example, fish, cheating for um, uh, reproductive advantages, sort of like, uh, uh, such as precocious in salmon. These are little male salmons that don't go to the sea to fatten up and come back as a competitive male. So they stay in the, in, in the fresh water. <laughs> and they get sec- uh, they are sexually mature the second year. Well, they are still tiny little fish. They're, they're bigger fish. They are sexually mm-hmm. mature. You cannot imagine a salmon that big. So they're sexually mature. But it's a strategy. Uh, it's a strategy uh, so that they can reproduce faster.
0: While the other ones are away, getting bigger and, and stronger. the other ones
1: are away. And also, when you migrate to the sea, it typically comes back like, like five years. And during the five years, lots of them die. Mm-hmm. And these little ones don't have to suffer that kind of uh, onerous uh, onerous migration. So they actually skip that that step. So there are pros and cons. The pros mm-hmm. in that, well, lower um, mortality, but the, the, the cons is, well, they are so small, there, there's little, uh, mm-hmm. um, for example, sperm to be made. Right.
0: Uh, and also
1: they often got, eaten by other fish as well. So, so yeah, it's always a balance. We, we often call it, as you know, uh, behavioral polymorphism, mm-hmm. or morphological polymorphism. Polymorphism is very common in animals, and because of different approaches and uh, strategies, you have different kinds of approaches, different behaviors. They are equally adaptive, and then that's the reason they are existing in certain proportions. A
0: population the small salmon mating strategy reminds me of another strategy you talk about the sneaky fucker lizards
1: oh the 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 yeah the um set uh the what is the um rock scissor paper lizard right uh-huh. the, the site about, uh the side about uh lizards yes that's right these lizards uh come males come in three types the orange male that is uh, super aggressive and holding a big territory uh, within it, uh, there are several females, so they defend for several females, and then you have monogamous blue males with with a, sort of like a blue throat, and they typically have one female. Uh, but you know they are far less aggressive, which also means far less uh, cost in terms of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they are far uh, uh, far less aggressive, so they spend less time on energy or in in, in fighting. And finally, you have the kind of female uh, that pretended to be <laughs> to be female and uh, and sneaking around in the orange male, which means the most most aggressive male's territory, and under the nose of their territorial owner, <laughs> and doing sneaking around and mating with uh, with females. So so you you have three strategies, and they are polymorphism, typical reproductive polymorphism.
0: I, I normally don't curse on this podcast but it is the technical term for that third strategy sneaky fucker right
1: yeah that's right you can well shimal is also an older term <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but you, you you can talk about these things it uh, should not be a problem uh, uh, unless we have some other meaning <laughs> for that we try to detach the the kind of meaning from humans <laughs> you are right uh-huh. I I told that
0: uh that story to several friends, especially female friends, and we've been comparing it to this uh, similar behaviors in humans. This is where it gets a little bit psychological and uh, more anecdotal, less scientific. But the idea is that you have some like the orange lizards who are very dominant. So this is the traditional alpha male, maybe they're the quarterback at school. And then you have the other more less blue or less colorful lizards so this would be like the nerds at school probably like you and I were as researchers (laughs) and (laughs) and so so something like the nice guys and the idea is you don't get you don't acquire mates through the traditional strategy so you have to do something like saying well in in a way like the female lizard technique of appealing to more feminine traits so saying something like I'm not like other guys. You can talk to me. We can get emotional. We can open up about our feelings. Like all these things that are attractive, fitness indicators, but in a very different way than the than the traditional sense. So again, it's it's sort of like a separate pathway to achieve the same desired outcome, and the de- desired outcome being uh, acquiring a mate.
1: Yeah, different strategies. Um, um The evolutionary biologist David Bus. Uh, evolutionary psychologist. You, you know him, right? Mm-hmm. David Buss has been talking about uh, uh, the the male and the women, men and short-term versus long-term relationships and all these things and using a totally two different sets of strategies for short-term mm-hmm. relationship or for long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for short-term relationships, these uh, guys tend to be macho-looking, high testosterone, but, but they are not dedicated to A commitment committed to a long term relationship, right? Uh, And then prefer a one night stand, for example. Uh, The the long term, um, uh, for for males like us, you know, people tend to see as long term, uh, uh, really for long term relationships once involved get involved, and they would make a commitment.
0: To to tie this into nature and nurture, you might think that it's merely an individual differences thing that's determined by genes. Like maybe some people are just more high testosterone and going to be oriented towards short term mating no matter what. But we also know uh, that testosterone levels go down in a committed relationship and go down even further after a male becomes a father. And that seems to be in part to inhibit that aggressive impulse and to inhibit sex drive so that the male is more oriented towards Caring him for his children.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, the one one of the famous psychological studies is about married people live longer, right? You've mm-hmm. seen that one. Yes. <laughs> you know, the people in the first. Uh, they, they thought that was a correlation, but they thought that well, marriage will make you live longer. Yeah, you get married. Then they realized, well, yeah, there's a lot of changes, and also women choose men who tend to have a stable income, good health. Uh, I mean intelligence, for example, and these uh, features, characters will make a man live longer. It's not because of marriage. It's uh-huh. probably because of women's good choice.
0: <laughs> and those are all costly signals because it's it's clearly a fitness indicator to be healthy, to be wealthy, to be intelligent. All of these are things that you want, but they also require a lot of discipline. So only those enough disciplined can actually exhibit that costly signal.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So there there are lots of these parallels that we see between evolutionary biology and the diverse range of species that you cover into your book. And then in the later chapters, you get towards humans. We've already started uh, discussing this a little bit, but we, we talk about how there's deception at the individual level, which seems to be pervasive across species. And then you mentioned that deception at the institutional level seems to be unique to humans or at least to highly... Intelligent social species.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because animals don't have other animals don't have institutions, social mm-hmm. institutions, but, but cheating on institutions, cheating on organizations, cheating on government, cheating on uh um cheating on uh, on rules, cheating on laws, for example. And these are uniquely human.
0: I'm sure you're familiar with Franz De Waal's work with with chimpanzees, and he has a book called chimpanzee culture if I remember correctly and they chimpanzee they uh, ra- politics.
1: Chimpanzee, chimpanzee politics, politics 1987, yes. yeah 1987
0: yeah and they arrange themselves hierarchically and and they do have politics right it's it's not as complex as our own but do you see something akin to institutional deception in
1: chimps um the the, the problem is they don't have institutions so so mm-hmm. there's no way they can they can do that, but but their um, their politics could be elaborate. Uh, mm-hmm. The the interesting note was that um, in the nineteen nineties, when Newt Gingrich was the speak uh speaker of uh, House Speaker, he asked every Republican to read that book.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> With to the goal that, that it's going to understand ourselves, he he was, and I,
1: that's how alpha male became vernacular term, right? Exactly. Exactly. How to maneuver? How to manipulate others to be alpha? I think that's that was a the message.
0: Mm-hmm. There's there's an interesting paradox here that on one hand, institutional deception is unique to humans, and this type of large scale corruption is unique to humans. But on the other hand, it's it's not really unique at all because it's the same basic building blocks just applied at a much larger scale.
1: Oh yeah. Um, Eventually, the victims are people. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, uh, but the deception per se, or the cheating, or, or the lying, or cheating, and all these things per se, is not directly against the people, but be- uh, be- uh, directed against the institution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, I think that that's the difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, you quote a lot of philosophers in your book, so we can get real philosophical here. There's as uh, long as you don't
1: uh, uh, don't talk about Freud.
0: <laughs> okay. no not philosophical not psychological so okay. there's, <laughs> there's this idea of converging towards some sort of natural law of behavior like in a game theory sense because on one hand even though in the rest of the animal world nothing looks like you know economics we've created or discovered these sort of natural laws in game theory that seem to apply, describe optimal trading strategies in a whole variety of different economic games. And you could swap out economics for something like survival if the resources are food or sex in a in a biological context. So the philosophical question there is, even at these higher order institutional levels, are there something like latent natural biological laws that still apply to us, but we've just yet to discover.
1: Oh, that's a great one. Um I do think uh lots of them will have to be discovered. Um mm-hmm. although we, we we've been working toward that direction for quite some time. People have been using uh psychologists and biologists have been using uh these economic laws, the game theories, um uh trade-offs, uh benefit cost the ratio and all these things have been applied to them. So um, yes, we have been using that all the time, but I do believe there has to be something new newer, (laughs) something Mm -hmm. that have not been discovered. Uh, Recently, uh, 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 my lab has been working on uh, to see whether uh, these fish uh, are involved in bargaining when during the the competitive uh, interactions instead of all about competition, you know, like Darwin said, but we were thinking that potentially, potentially, they also engage in the so-called cooperative bargaining, which will benefit both of them. So it's sort of like a game theory, but it's not directly a game theory yet, but we were, we've been using that uh, to see uh-huh. whether animals interact in a more sophisticated way than just a competition, 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 it's all about competition.
0: Right. <laughs> and then again, to get to that conscious or unconscious question, whatever you discover there, it's bound to be amazing because either the fish are much smarter than we realize in order to engage in complex social behavior, or they don't really have to be intelligent at all. And it's just instinctual, in which case, again, there's much more encoded in their genes than we realize.
1: Yeah, that's that's the, the nature and nurture part. Right. <laughs> again. Yeah, um, yeah. I do believe, you know, for, for example, cuckoos. um. Uh, when they parasitize on a uh, uh, reed warbler, the reed warblers actually, uh, when the 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 paras, uh paras, parasitic ratio is high, such as like thirty percent of the reed warblers' nests are um parasitized, the reed will be careful and they will toss out all the the eggs that do not look like theirs. Well, that's thirty percent, but when the parasitical ratio is lower like a six percent below six percent and these um uh, reader warblers the host will not toss out any of them because otherwise you toss out the uh, uh the, the bath water with the babies so 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 you can see that they do have that kind of instinctive a uh, sense of probability but do they know mm. probability no definitely not it's just a a a, a set of rule of thumb, They apply according to certain situations.
0: Uh, You see a lot of this in neuroscience, especially on the computational end. People are arguing even for very simple organisms that they're doing something like a Bayesian probabilistic model, like the the basic neurons are operating in this probabilistic way.
1: Yeah, people have been working on neurons and some neurons involved in that kind of assessment of the situation. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Are you a neurobiologist, right? A neuropsychologist, Um, right? I'm going
0: to yes, but but more so on the developmental psychology end no, than the on the actual thing. neurobiology. Like the, yeah. about the the deepest I go into the biology is looking at, you know, pr- proportion of variance explained in an age related change by puberty and hormones. But I couldn't oh, tell okay. you what the hormones are actually doing on the cellular level.
1: Okay. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Have you heard of... Yeah, the biology and psychology coming together. I mean, you have to be psychologists up there, like a philosoph- philosophy and biology is just uh, um, calling around on <laughs> these basic things. Measures, Absolutely.
0: Nature, nature and nurture, the whole th- yeah, the whole yeah. theme of this.
1: <laughs> and we talk about nature, you talk about nur- nurture all the time, but now it's nice that we come together.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting because psychology is, is generally moving in a more biological direction. And it sounds like, in biology, especially when we're talking about you know, species that you normally don't think is that highly social, like and capable of cooperation, like fish, again moving a little bit
1: towards that nurture end. Yeah, that's right. Uh the, the the fish, uh I I actually use the two um two fantastic examples of fish. One is the um the uh the guppies. The guppies, mm-hmm. the guppies uh, uh when males when males co- uh, when a male quotes on a female and the, the copies would find an ugly male to go with uh, to, to with it. So basically taking the Ebbinghaus illusion, the effect of Ebbinghaus illusion. So mm-hmm. to make, well, if a plain looking male accompanied by an, an ugly looking male and the plain looking male will look better <laughs> in comparison, uh-huh. that's Ebbinghaus illusion.
0: <laughs> right. It's like anchoring. The expectations are lowered.
1: Absolutely. In terms of behavioral economics, basically is a psychology.
0: <laughs> we were talking earlier about uh, parasitic behavior. Have you heard of the hypothesis of parasitic ideas in the Richard Dawkins sense of like memes can be things that are hosted by well, in in this case humans, so like memes are ideas that can be transmitted and evolution, cultural evolution can change them over time. So, you know, let's say we see an internet meme and it could undergo a slight adaptation, like you edit it in some way. And in the same way with genetic mutations, most edits are probably gonna make it worse, but some of them might make it more funny and that much more likely to be shared and it propagates over time. And then, so, so going off of that basic idea, of memes and cultural evolution, uh, people like Gad Saad and Andy Norman have argued that there are parasitical ideas. So these are ideas that you see, th- they're, they're, they're also arguing that they are especially transmitted over social media. So over social media, words that contain angry emotional words are more likely to be transmitted, they're more likely to evoke a reaction and then people will share it, they'll retweet it, not necessarily because they like it, but just because you know it's so frustrating and you wanna share it just to evoke a reaction and get other people to em- empathize with your emotional reaction of like, look how terrible this is, we should all collectively, uh, collectively protest it. So that would be an example of a parasitical idea, right? It's, it's successfully propagating itself at the cost of its host.
1: Oh, that's absolutely. Uh, is the form, uh, disinformation mainly that kind of parasitic idea?
0: Disinformation I did, I, Disinformation is probably, a, I guess you would frame it as like an unfortunate consequence of it because okay. the, the natural baseline truth would be something like an idea is parasitical if it's harmful to its host, or if it undergoes changes that benefit the idea in the sense of propagating itself at harm to its host. And then it probably just so happens that the more something is likely to outrage you, the more likely it is to be exaggerated and untrue. And then that's like the indirect pathway towards misinformation.
1: Yeah, I I think that's, that's all possible. I mean, you, you look at the, the disinformation some of the ideas are so contagious and quickly, and you know they they uh, they they utilize um people's uh, the confirmation bias. So some of the ideas spread very quickly, and not necessarily mm-hmm. uh uh has the or any of them has the obvious costs immediately. So people may not feel it, but then you look back on uh, it's <laughs> pretty pretty bad. And I I look at the, these COVID um. Uh, data in terms of the the, the 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 anti-vax folks I mean, you look at the anti-vax folks and they still many of them still believe that but you look at the data then you see that uh the people in comparison those people with two uh, two shots of any of the madonna or uh pfizer um, vaccine uh they act uh and in comparison with same age people uh, without any shots, those who are not uh, vaccinated uh, suffered 14 times higher uh, of mortality. But, you know, yeah, I mean, this anti-vax idea is highly contagious. Uh-huh. But in the end, is those folks that um, suffer. But you, not necessary, I mean, for everybody. But statistics uh-huh. uh, never lie. So that that would be
0: a classic example of a parasitical idea because it's propagating itself at harm to its host. Do you know of any of the evolutionary psychology research on disgust sensitivity?
1: Disgust sensitivity.
0: So the idea is that certain beliefs, and it, I think the
1: Paul Rosen's idea, right? Paul Rosen's idea from 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 University of Pittsburgh, right?
0: I'm not Discuss. sure of the source. I'll, yeah. I'll fully describe it and, and let me know if we're talking about the same thing. So it it does make sense however wrong it is when looking at it from an objective data-driven perspective that if you have a physiological trait like disgust sensitivity some are there's natural individual variability there some are more disgust sensitive than others and what a vaccine is is literally injecting your body with a foreign substance a virus so it no wonder some people are gonna be disgusted by that or extremely emotionally reactive to that. And you know, obviously you need the scientific mindset to take the next step forward and say, okay, a little bit of virus now means a lot let a, less a virus later. So it's a good thing in the long run. But if you're looking at it dispassionately from like an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that there would be a small subset of the population that wouldn't be open to such a thing.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely, that's the, the, the what is the behavioral economic, economists have been saying that uh, our society is so complex, that our, our intuitive feeling often mm-hmm. fail us. And you really have to look at the data instead of <laughs> uh, relying on your own feeling, which basically, especially like a small probability events, we don't have any idea. We recognize uh, shocks, for example, as the dangerous animal, we did not realize that, well, the most dangerous animals are mosquitoes that mm-hmm. kill over a million people, uh, infecting uh, so many people with malaria and killing at least a million people a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, shocks, maybe how many, dozen people? <laughs> a yeah, year?
0: I, d- I did a podcast with Steven Pinker a few months ago, a great psychologist. He wrote a book. Recently, called rationality, and he talks about all of these different cognitive biases, like as you mentioned, not re- people being more afraid of sharks than mosquitoes, even though the data shows us that mosquitoes are far more dangerous.
1: That's right. Uh, that's we don't have sense of how dangerous mosquitoes are. So that's that's something we, we we somehow we have not evolved. But mosquitoes live with humans for so long. I mean, why do we still don't have the sense of, of afraid of being afraid of them? Because the, the disgust level, maybe, when, when, when a person is, is, is torn apart by shocks, that was uh-huh. disgusting, right? And the people uh-huh. are scared. But when you got a bite by mosquito, the chance of maybe. may be low.
0: I bet there's some neuropsychology of associative learning going on there because our brains are very good at pairing direct threat with direct context of that threat. But... With something like a mosquito, you know, it bites you. Maybe you realize, maybe you don't. But even yeah. if you realize you get sick days or weeks later, there's nothing that's directly making the connection. Whereas as you're, you're getting bitten by a shark, you immediately know what is causing oh, yeah, you okay.
1: harm. Yeah, that makes sense, uh, absolutely. Although rare, but uh, the consequences is obvious.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. and, then, and then that information would spread. So it's it's much harder to tell a story that sticks um, unless unless you're trained scientifically to understand, um, you know, how disease spreads by mosquitoes. and So all of that points at the pessimistic end of the information age, because we can transmit information, true or false, very rapidly. And things like social media allow for false information to be transmitted at higher rates than before. And it allows for these sorts of echo chambers where People who normally might be a single crazy person in a village out of 100 can now get together with enough of them across the world and think that it's a greater consensus than it actually is. So that's the harm. Uh, on the optimistic side, though, we also have something like wisdom of the crowd taking over on social media.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. I think it's uh, we are living in a totally new world and the selection forces are different now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I do believe that um, the senior citizens are the most vulnerable group of people because of their declining cognitive capacity. And Mm -hmm. otherwise they could recognize some of the apparent obvious um, scams, but because of their declining cognitive system, and they may fail to recognize Oh, th- and- this is a
0: nature-nurture question as well, because it, it sounds like you're describing more of a, a natural explanation, which is to say with age, you have a decline in certain cognitive faculties, which is certainly true. So again, it's not going to be an either-or thing. But the first thing I thought was nothing about age-related changes in cognition, but I was thinking like, oh, just the older populations weren't raised around the internet like I was, so they're not aware how pervasive scams are. Oh, that, that would that, be more that, of a nurture explanation.
1: yeah, that's that's another uh, aspect. yes, definitely.
0: And yeah. we, were, we were talking about at the beginning, it's not about which is which. it's about which one explains more of the variance. Which of these effects do you think it would be driving it?
1: I think it's both. Um, mm-hmm. but you know as um for example, 20 years down the line, I'm I mean probably we we, we grow up uh, along the internet um, availability. But uh, 20 years down the line, and uh, still, I I still believe that uh, the old, older folks will still be more vulnerable. And uh, I mean, the scammers will target older folks. Uh, uh, it's it's just more, uh, it's it's easier. And also older folks tend to be mm-hmm. established and they have more resources as well. So it's more profitable <laughs> for scammers.
0: Another unique area uh, is that's evolutionarily ancient, which is mate selection, but has completely changed in the modern world with online dating as well as online dating. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure um, you've thought or written about how deception plays a role there as well.
1: Yeah. Um, men tend to exaggerate a few more inches taller uh, uh-huh. uh, in online, on average, but you know, there are people who are more honest than others. Women tend to um, exaggerate their body weight by like uh, 16 pounds less uh, uh-huh. yeah th- these are the kind of some uh, snapshots of the the, the uh, uh, I mean lying these are not even the second these are lying these are outright lying but right. there are others yeah and, and
0: this is something I've never understood I, I know that I'm the psychologist but I, I want to spin it to you so because you would think that there's no point because let's say you lie and you attract the mate, and then they realize you lied and they're like, Oh, well, I was in, I was conditionally interested on you and now I'm no longer interested. So you just wasted everyone's time. And you would think that enough of that would mean the lying just stops because it's not effective, but it Mm -hmm. must continue because it's effective. So then the question is, is it effective to the sense that people are hoping Maybe I'll lie now and it'll get my foot in the door. But then once I get my foot in the door, they'll like me enough for other reasons that I can stick
1: around. That's exactly uh, the, the situation. You you need the chance first. If you do not lie, for example, like me, I'm only 5'7". I mean, if if I were in my 20s, I really desperately need a girlfriend, for example. But I said, well, I'm 5'7". Uh, uh, five seven, and and very few people would even uh, click my profile. Not to mention that they will send me a, uh-huh. a, a an an inquiry or something. I never get a chance. If I say, well, I'm five nine, and then get one foot into it, and then you know, see what would happen. <laughs> and
0: then, so then you say. Um... Once they like you, then you apologize and tell the truth. This happened with my parents. And I know my mom is listening so high uh, that, that when they met, my mom was 29. My dad was 48. But he lied and said he was 38 to minimize that age gap. And then it was only once she already fell in love that he's like, actually, I'm 10 years older than I said I was. He didn't have any gray hair at the time, though. So I guess he was able to pull it off.
1: Yeah, I, c- I can dye my hair, for example. <laughs> huh.
0: Now, there's yeah. a, a culture of ex- accepting that or making it more likely. So, for example, I'm six feet tall, even. And oftentimes I'll meet guys who are six feet tall, allegedly, and I'm taller than them. So what this is, clearly they're like 5'11", and they're, uh, they're exaggerating just a little bit. And earlier in my life, what would happen is I would say, no, you're not. And... <laughs> <laughs> We'd, They would try to convince me that I'm, in fact, taller than I thought I was. And now I just go with it. Now I say I'm 6'1", because everyone else who's six foot tall, allegedly, is a little bit an inch shorter than me. So it's created this interesting pressure where even though I'm at the threshold at which people are generally lying about, it it forces me to lie as well, just to map on to everyone's other else's expectation of what six feet tall looks like.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's absolutely. I mean, uh, we our society is so open and so dynamic that you we really don't have time to to know each other. Unlike, for example, when I was little and I was living in a small village and everybody knew everybody else. So mm-hmm. you cannot hide from me whatever. But nowadays people like Tinder, for example, it's just your profile. Who knows who you are, mm-hmm. right? And even politically, for example, uh the people voted for top old men, for example. And that mm-hmm. was uh the that was the reason um um nowadays um 80% of these uh candidates, uh presidential candidates are uh have been won by the taller one. Uh, since the uh, since when since the beginning of last century maybe mm-hmm. because of, especially because of the tv uh, right. uh, coverage uh, that was starting from starting from uh, jfk's time uh-huh. and i mean the, the short candidate was just not possible to win nowadays but right. that, I, yeah
0: you don't Go want ahead. to say correlation is causation you don't want to say being tall makes you win but there might be these indirect pathways of like if you're taller, you're more confident, or you appear more dominant, and all these things indirectly lead to that increased chance of winning.
1: Absolutely, that was a uh, Stone Age, uh, cognitive <laughs> uh, instinct, right? Stone Age, uh-huh. the tall man kind of tended to be stronger, kind to be, you know, maybe better at the hunting, yeah, better, mm-hmm. better at getting food. Uh, tall men uh, were stronger you know, in Stone Age, and we still have have that impression there, so that we just many people don't cast on the policies, they just cast on impression, cast their views also... on impression. That was the reason a few years ago, during I uh, uh, 2015, uh, uh, the last round of uh, competition, um, these, uh, what is the, 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 the Florida guy? Um, what is his name? Uh, he, he's the Florida Senator?
0: Ron DeSantis.
1: Ron, no, he's the governor. Um, oh. I don't know then um I suddenly sort of forgot when he was debating on Trump with Trump and during the um Republican um um uh primary he was debate deba- debating with Trump he's he's still uh, the uh um the, the senator from from Florida I forgot his name so I just slip it away but he was wearing a high heel <laughs> In debate, because he was five nine, he was average size, but but in comparison, he was shorter than Trump. But so he wore mm-hmm. he wore a high heel, like a two inch high heel, um, mm-hmm. uh, to the debate, and then it was noted, uh, noticed by the Trump campaign group, and they made a joke of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've seen the same thing with a shorter Hollywood actors. Marco, uh,
1: Ma- uh, Marco, um, what is his name? Rubio? Marco. Yeah, that's right.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, no. they do the same thing in Hollywood. I don't remember oh, okay. which actor was shorter than I expected, but I remember seeing that there was some movie uh, where... I think it was in The Greatest Showman, Zac Efron is a male lead and he's like 5'9". And he and Zendaya, the female lead, is also like 5'9 or 5'10". They wanted him to be ho- taller, so he had the same types of shoes on in the movie.
1: Ah, I see. Yeah, it's just everywhere. Nowadays, that's impossible. For John Adams, who was uh, five seven, and and um, and 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 Madison, uh, James Madison, to be elected, that's not possible. Madison was only like a 5'4", five, five, oh, wow. Yeah, just nowadays, just impossible for them to be uh, elected because of video, uh, uh, the 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 TV live coverage. Well, that that was closer
0: to average two or three hundred years ago, wasn't it? Because we've had all sorts of changes in diet since industrialization.
1: Yeah, the Adam Adam was probably Adams was probably average. Uh John Adams was average, but Madison was clearly shorter.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you yeah. looked into any of the data from dating apps like Tinder?
1: No, I have not. Uh there was a few a few years ago I looked at uh, uh how some of information uh is a, uh, is a, uh, is a, uh, uh, exaggerated. I think
0: you would be fascinated in doing so as, as an evolutionary biologist because it exactly pr- matches what you would predict by all the classic theories of sexual selection. So for one thing, there are far more men than women who go on these dating apps to begin with, which makes sense because men seems to generally be the ones seeking out more sex, especially on Tinder. So on Tinder, which is known as more of a hookup app, as opposed to like a date and find a long-term partner app, it's far more skewed towards men. And On other dating apps that are more geared towards like serious relationships, I believe the sex ratio is more balanced. And on Tinder, which is known to be a hookup app, you also see much more of a disparity, like a Pareto distribution of who gets the likes. So it's something like the top 10% of users get 90% of the likes. And not only that, another interesting sex difference you find is that the average woman rates the average man as below active. Average attractiveness and the average man rates the average woman as above average attractiveness, Ah, and that seems to be a result of that sex ratio disparity. Where it's like because women are relatively scarce, the average woman seems above average, and because men are relatively abundant, the average man just statistically seems below average.
1: Absolutely, that's the economic theory, right? Scarcity. Drives up the price. <laughs> uh-huh. Drives the price. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I would like to add a little bit. Ashley Madison, for example, the company for uh, for the for, for 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 cheating for the married couples dating, and mm-hmm. in their database, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, uh, men are overwhelmingly mainly more more common than women. So the the way they try to satisfy uh, these demand, would the, mm-hmm. they created the kind of bots. Uh, to to reply to men, so...
0: Big woman bots who, Fake to woman make the men yeah. more interested or, or more likely to not quit the app or to pay for the premium subscription?
1: Absolutely. So it's basically... Wow. And now try, we have AI try, chats like GPT-3, well.
0: GPT-4 that could make those bots even better. And you could really wow. think you're yeah, interacting I mean... with a real human.
1: In the future, and this is, uh, yeah, the, the GPT 4.0, now even even more look human. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, the potential is limitless nowadays, it looks like.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I was at a psych talk recently. It was it was somewhat of a doomsdaying talk. Often a lot of psychology research, especially social psychology, which is widely survey-based, uses websites like Amazon, MTurk which allows you to recruit people and there's already been a problem of you know if you're if you're studying something like political beliefs in America you want american subjects and there's already been a problem of um and you get paid for the survey so there are people who set set up like bot farms of people from like china or india taking the surveys just to earn money and pretending to be american that's been a problem for a while and the what this talk was saying is that now with uh, things like GPT-4, you don't even need people farms to do that. You can just get bots to do it with and create fake AI-generated text. And the prediction was uh, all psychology research that's going to be using those online surveys it's probably going to go away in the next few years as bots take over. So we're going to need to go back to in-person studies.
1: With was, was a paper and pencil, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> going back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's a new trend, absolutely. Um, we don't know what will happen. And I, I have telling my students, if we use AI to write your term paper, they are considered to be plagiarism. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a big debate about that, especially with AI-generated art, because the art is, on one hand, unique and novel. So you could say that the one who creates the prompt is the one who generated it. On the other hand, you could say that the AI created it using... Training data from other artists. So, to especially if you give it a prompt to say, like, create something in the style of another artist. To what extent is that plagiarizing the other artist?
1: Wow. Yeah. That's um, now the cheating at a higher level.
0: Uh-huh. You know, to return it to your book, that's that's a nice roundabout way of yeah. you. You argue that deception in all sorts of ways has led to creative advancements in like artistic advancement and intelligence and culture, both in humans and other animals.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And cheating and anti-cheating got locked up uh, as That's arms good. race and say so go on and on and you have more and more new things coming out. Intelligence
0: is fairly straightforward to me because if someone is lying, the more socially intelligent you are, the more you can pick up on contextual cues that can signal that they're being dishonest, and then you can you can recognize that, and you can adjust your behavior accordingly. But how is it for things like artistic and creative achievement? Where does deception come into play there?
1: Well, uh, uh, in all art, all art is about deceiving our vision. For example, I, I use the, the, the example of Rembrandt. For example, Rembrandt is really good at painting the light. The way he does it to fill our eyes is by making everywhere else dark well emphasize a certain spot and that is a fire or, or light so mm-hmm. I in my book I use the, the what is the uh, philosopher or what a meditate a meditation that is one of his famous paintings and just you look at the the light coming through the window it's just so bright mm-hmm. I mean this is basically using our uh, deception the 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 um the, the what is the viewer's uh uh, uh 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 sort of cog- cognitive uh, uh distortion? Right. Do you call it distortion? Cognitive distortion when contrast was something or illusion? Illusion when contrast was something really dark. These light spots really uh, shows up.
0: Right, and this is deception as opposed to lying because the painting in truth is what it is, but it's exploiting sensory biases that we have that make us think it's something else.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, and um, uh, Asher, for example, Asher always uh, draw things that is looks like a, a ridiculous in in reality, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's a it's an artistic deception.
0: Oh, I I don't know if you're familiar with this. There have been theoretical arguments that in primates, including humans, our vision was adapted. There was like a an evolutionary arms race between snakes and primates, and the hypothesis is that in areas where primates, our early ancestors, were heavily predated on by snakes, human vision evolved to get better. So the the primates that had better vision could avoid the snakes more. And over millions of years, we get better vision. And there were uh, a, a series of studies or maybe even meta analyses done across a whole bunch of different countries and populations and species. And there was a general pretty robust correlation between the prevalence of snakes and how acute the vision of different primate species are across the world.
1: You think that's the way? I, 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 I don't know about that that specific one. But to me, I, uh, I really I've been thinking that. Well, it is a vision related to our um, um, bipedal walking. I've heard I mean, that once,
0: argument as well. I'm yeah, not as familiar yeah. with.
1: Yeah. Once you have bipedal walking, um, your nose uh, is well off the ground. So unlike mm-hmm. a dog sniff around all the time, uh, I mean, when you have bipedal walking and basically you are standing high and really favoring uh the visual uh evolution, the sharp mm-hmm. vision, being far, seeing sharper. I mean, this uh-huh. is uh, uh, most probably the most convincing, is is easiest thing to relate with. But I'm not sure as to the snakes. Um mm-hmm. if we evolved from Africa, I mean, if we evolved from say we have evolved from a million years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I would not say uh, 200,000 um, years ago. That only refers to the uh, mitochondrial DNA. It's just one kind of DNA. There are so many <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. DNA uh, around us. It's a combination of that. The people have this misunderstanding that well, humans only evolved like uh, uh, 200,000 uh, years ago. No, 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 We right. are way back. So say uh, a few million years ago mm-hmm. uh, and um, we don't know, uh, the snake distribution, for example. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's hard to, to argue. Yeah, and this,
0: and this wasn't even just in humans or even just in apes. It was across primate species across the world at a population level. The idea is monkeys that live in areas where there are higher populations of snake in general have better vision than monkeys where there are no snakes. And I don't know how large the effect size is, so it's, it's by no means saying that this is the only explanation. But it was interesting to me that this seems the better vision. If that finding is true, seems to be like a counter deception strategy or a strategy uh, for better detecting deception because snakes like to hide. Ah, uh,
1: okay. Um, you have to look at, uh, in Australia. Australia mm-hmm. uh, has the high uh, most abundant snakes there.
0: So the so the hypothesis it, it, it then would be that the, the best vision would be in Australia. It.
1: Yeah, so whatever you, you would think about kangaroos and <laughs> and koalas and, and all these uh, marsupials, and they should have mm-hmm. a higher cognitive system, even mm-hmm. better than anywhere else if the the snake venom actually uh, drives the evolution of vision. Uh, I don't see that pattern, but mm-hmm. it, it's just possible.
0: the bipedalism would explain our increased clarity in vision, but it wouldn't necessarily say anything about color vision. And I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts or, or if you know the data on how humans evolved better color vision than most, because I, I was watching a great David Attenborough documentary called Life in Color, and they did a really cool thing showing, one thing they showed is a tiger in the jungle and saying like, why would a tiger evolve to be orange against a green backdrop? It makes no sense. It sticks out like a sore thumb. And they were saying, only for humans does it stick out a as a thought sum because we have uh, three color receptor cones but most of the prey that the tigers are hunting have only two so to them orange looks like green and then they put a filter on the camera and they mm-hmm. showed the tiger blending in and suddenly the orange and black stripes were more like green and black and it blended in very very excellent and it was it was much more difficult to tell and then i could i could see how the stripes actually were serving as camouflage. Camouflage. Yeah, um
1: in, in lizards, uh, there are four. Uh mm-hmm. lizards and birds as well, but birds are reptiles anyway. Birds have more, some of them have more, but at mm-hmm. least a four. And the humans have um three and three cones, and uh, so as the most old world uh, uh, monkeys and apes. But in new world, typically they have two. Um the the the, the, the prevailing theory about that is that um uh, the the color vision probably especially in the sexual uh dimorphic color vision is often related to uh, to to seeing fruits the mm-hmm. red orange and, and particularly sensitive especially for females so some of the species evolved uh, the, the kind of sort of like a and uh, uh watari in uh, South America and these species have the really bright uh, facial features so as to uh, get females closer and make females interested in it. Basically, it's the, what is sensor sensory exploitation theory that when you have red and the red is sensitive to female vision and females, at least again, you sort of like uh, get a foot into it. <laughs> that's the kind of dating <laughs> thing. <laughs> so yeah. get you get your clothes and then, you, then uh, uh, there is something else. So I think that's uh, one of the uh, evolutionary, uh, hypothesized evolutionary pathways. Yeah. For, uh the the color e- evolution and also why males uh develop some kind of colorful features in their body
0: I I know in your book you've talked about similar studies with birds do you know if there have been any studies in monkeys where you paint the monkey uh red or a certain color to look as though it has the like the the fertile butt in the case of like a, a female in estrus or does that then excite the males even if it's just fake red paint?
1: Uh, I have not seen any, uh, lots of them in birds. Yeah. birds you can manipulate. I don't know why, why, but probably it's harder to manipulate in monkeys. Mm-hmm. I have not seen any, but probably there are. <laughs> Cause,
0: Cause you would, you would think there's a whole continuum of how gullible you are there because, you know, for, for humans, well, I guess we have makeup. So may, maybe not, maybe it does, it does still work. Makeup can fool you into someone thinking someone more attractive. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the makeups are uh, typically done by uh, women, but mm-hmm. in some Asian country, uh, countries such as South Korea and China, in some of the highly competitive competitive cities, men do makeup with as well. But you know, it's it's rare. But in, in mm-hmm. women, it's uh makeup in especially Western countries or no uh, developed countries, it's more often. Mm-hmm. Basically, the one uh most important goal of making up is to make you look younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, you know, as evolutionary psychologists have been saying, basically, it's the most valuable commodity to be younger for women.
0: Now, for for men, this might relate to the costly signaling handicapping idea, because men typically don't wear makeup. And you could say that, why not? That's an easy way to make yourself look more attractive. But what is typically seen as attractive for men is muscularity. And there's no way to fake that, right? You have to do the hard work uh, of exercising a lot and eating right.
1: You go to the to gym. You go to the gym to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, contrary to makeup, which which might you might view as something like uh, in in this this deception sense, you can easily fake. This is more like that costly fitness indicator that shows that someone has put in the necessary work.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you have to put uh, some work into. Oh, some of the. The, the what is the uh the, the shoulder shoulder pad, for example, uh-huh. is also a uh, fake signal. So it to make you look like it was a wider shoulder. So it's more to be more attractive. And these designs right. yeah also indicate that as well.
0: It does make you look more dominant. Maybe that's why politicians are always in suits.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like a Marco Rubio, right? Uh, wearing the <laughs> high heel mm-hmm. boots. <laughs> yeah.
0: Leashing, there's one last agenda item for me. This is the idea of luxury beliefs by Rob Henderson. I, I sent you a couple articles. Were you able to take a look at those?
1: Oh yeah, that one. Uh, one of the articles is more convincing than the other. I mean, the rich people try to uh create some kind of subculture that mm-hmm. is not uh try to exclude others, uh those who cannot afford, for example. I, I do agree with the one uh one of the what you gave me two. Oh, oh, the one is from a New York Post, right? Mm-hmm. That one is less convincing than the other one. The other one is more convincing. I I, I believe that uh uh originated from a conspicuous consumption and then uh, uh weave around a culture that is not affordable for people who cannot afford. Yeah, so so I think that is that is uh, uh, that is the way he has been saying. Mm-hmm.
0: So for for our listeners, there was a podcast a uh, a couple months ago with mm-hmm. Rob Henderson, who's a social psychologist, and he applies evolutionary themes to his work, and he talks a lot about status and dating, and the idea is there are some costly status indicators like you can wear an expensive watch or nice clothes or things that only if you can afford it can you have this fitness indicator so that's going to be attractive to people yeah. but yeah. he's uniquely known for arguing for these luxury belief ideas now luxury belief he's saying is it's not a physical item or something about your appearance that signals status it's an idea that you hold but it's luxury in the sense that there are certain ideas that only you only get exposed to in certain high class circles, but it gets even more complicated than that because you might think, uh, I, I, you and I wish this were the case, Li Sheng. That the more educated you are in the academic sense, the more science you know. Those could be luxury beliefs that would be sexy, but for some reason, no one really sees listing off a bunch of formulas as sexy. But then there are other luxury beliefs, like just subtle knowledge about, you know, how how should you eat properly like if you if you're given multiple pieces of silverware at a fancy dinner like which is the right one to use these little subtle forms of cultural knowledge that signal status
1: Well, that's that's certainly true i mean you have um you grew up for example you grew up from a rich family i grew up from a poor family and and the way we talk with each other we use different language right mm-hmm. <laughs> we different different vocabulary for example uh uh even different wording <laughs> words and and uh, and probably you, you would recognize my language as rude, and your 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 language is highbrow, highbrow. For example, yeah, I mean, this is this is I would say instead of creating that kind of different culture, but I think it's basically you grew up with that, and you take it for as uh, for granted, and then people recognize it as different. Is that the case?
0: Well, I, I'm not sure where it's certainly been another... a bit of a jump to me. Um because yeah. I we we grew up in different cultures, so that there there may have still been a wealth gap, but at least within the United States, in the time that I was being raised 10, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. uh I wasn't wealthy. And coming into these fancy private schools where there's a very different culture, that was um a new thing to me. So, so Rob and I talk about this on, on the podcast because he he came from an untraditional background and then into these prestigious universities as well. And we, we talk about the culture shift there and how that mm. generated his hypotheses of uh, looking into luxury beliefs and status.
1: Yeah, he, he was talking about that he, he he grew up from a poor family and then went to uh, the military and came back and, and somehow got into uh, Yale University, right? Yes. And then he found that he, he did not fit in because people <laughs> speak uh-huh. and talk in a very different way and uh, quite uh-huh. different from where he grew up with. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's absolutely, I think uh, anything, language, of, of course, can create uh-huh. a barrier in many different ways.
0: You, you see these same interesting mating dynamics. I, I don't know how well this would generalize to other species, but in humans, we have culture. And one thing you notice is that when you have a status indicator, something like going to Harvard or Yale, on dating apps, or just in the real world, you get more attention from people. Like, like, let's say you're on the dating market. Market People are looking for that. But you don't get it within that bubble. Because you know Harvard students are dating other Harvard students, and they're not going to be impressed because they go there. So it sort of cancels out. But then as soon as you leave that bubble, then it starts to act as this outside filter and i'm wondering if in other species you have that too where there are some status or fitness indicators where maybe within a narrow circle where everyone has that traits they don't apply but then if if you generalize outwards then it can be attractive to like different populations so you you behave like a hover
1: and you attract to, for example, uh, some small school. People. I don't know what it
0: means to behave like Harvard. I, <laughs> I think I just behave like me. But then people place the label on you, right? And then and then yeah, you get yeah. treated differently, regardless.
1: Yeah, I, I think that yeah, that's I agree. Yeah, and I, I mean I've seen people like that, and the people pretend to be they have a better than you in a kind of background.
0: <laughs> and so is to that say- unique to humans, or is there any any form of doing that in animals? I guess this would mean be something like: Is it possible for animals to be arrogant, or do you have to be self conscious to be arrogant first?
1: Um. The look at uh, monkeys. It's absolutely likely, but huh. uh, you know, sometimes, often, when you when you don't see, it's because you are not specifically looking for that. Mm-hmm. So once you focus on that, sometimes you see differences. Uh-huh. We, yeah, we could I,
0: disentangle dominance like from it. arrogance here because other primates can certainly be dominant and that'll look like arrogant behavior in humans. But in humans, you might call that just dominant if it's in fact dominant. Arrogance seems to be something like you're acting too dominant for your own good or too dominant than you actually deserve to. So you're exaggerating your status. You're engaging in lying in the technical sense as you outlined in your book. Um. Yeah, in a way,
1: I... I, I when i was talking when you were talking about that i was thinking about the my uh monkeys and and uh-huh. the chimpanzees as well they all have their personalities
0: mm-hmm.
1: some of them are more aloof others are more friendly but basically they try to uh you know go higher in terms of social rank the different approaches for the same purpose yeah, so uh, the different personalities the personalities well yeah, yeah as psychologists you know a lot right the personality personalities are basically is a set of basic rules uh well i mean in terms of behavioral uh approach uh and, and approach to things in the different ways
0: yeah we've covered so much territory here deception <laughs> and lying we could go from, on forever
1: <laughs> from insects
0: to fish to, to primates to humans Um uh, yeah. Li Sheng, thank you very much for your time. Uh, listeners be sure to check out the nature of lying or sorry, <laughs> the liars of nature and the nature of liars. You're a yeah, time <laughs> tester.
1: Thank you very much Adam.
0: It's a nice Sheng. you.
1: To